Uh, I think it's the, the, the yield curve itself, which is the market speaking to the Fed, uh, that is going to be forcing the Fed's hand into, into, cutting, into cutting rates further. There's three more cuts priced into the Fed Fund's futures curve before year end already. They're going to have to cut because that's what the yield curve is telling them that they have to do. And I don't think the Fed has ever disappointed what the Fed Fund's futures markets were, were suggesting that it was um, going to have to do. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at stbullion.com. Now enjoy this interview. Welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Today I'm excited to hire first-time guest, Mr. Kevin Smith. He's a Chief Investment Officer at Crescat Capital, a global macro investment firm located in the Denver, Colorado area. Today, Kevin joins us to share his thoughts on the global economy, our monetary system, financial markets, and a lot more. So, Kevin Smith, welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Thank you, Mike. Well, I appreciate you taking time to sit down with us here, and I'm excited because this is my first time having an interview where we got some visual aids to help the audience get a better understanding of some things that's going on around us and how, from an investment standpoint, you're going to break some things down for us and, and help better educate the audience. Uh, but before we dive into that, uh, for those that may not know Kevin Smith, can you give us a little bit of your background and how Crescott Capital came about and just some of the beginnings of it? Sure, you bet. Um, so my background, uh, I have an undergrad degree in economics and a, and a graduate degree in finance from University of Chicago, undergrad from Stanford. I've been in the business about 24 years now, um, managing money and uh, for a couple of different firms, uh, Crescat, uh, where I manage our global macro hedge fund today, and a few other strategies. I started about 13 years ago, and um, and we run a, a global macro hedge fund, as well as uh, a long short uh, equity hedge fund and a, a precious metals long only. Uh, separately managed account as well as a large cap separately managed account. So we've got four different strategies and uh, I'll just leave it there for now. Sounds good. Sounds good. So with that being the case, let's dive right into it. And so I typically start off rethinking a dollar uh, because my goal is to educate the public on a monetary policy. I believe a lot of our education system uh, did not include the importance of understanding money, particularly sound money. And so a first question for you is what comes to mind when Kevin Smith hears the words rethinking the dollar? Okay, well, that's, uh, that's really interesting. You know, rethinking the dollar for me, uh, you know, it really comes down to, to questioning the dollar, challenging the dollar. And, and it's, uh, you know, really uh, makes me think of things, alternatives to the dollar, like gold, uh, other currencies. Um, and, uh, you know, this whole idea of whether inflation is ever going to come back again uh, in this country or not. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just... Um, you know, really uh, challenging why, you know, why the dollar uh, is or should be the world reserve currency. Um, and uh, I guess it is the world reserve currency, but didn't, didn't always used to be. Uh, anyway, those are just the things that come to mind. All right, understandable there. Now, and so I'm curious to find out where in August, uh, well over the halfway point of the year 2019, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of volatility in the markets. Uh, currently this week, uh, there's a, a monetary central bank policy meeting in Jackson Hole, uh, Wyoming. And so they're going to be 
strategizing on how to keep the economy afloat and this economic expansion we're in and all the words they like to give us out there. But I'm curious to find out as a macro investor and someone who does his research in various markets, you know, what are some things that has you concerned or what are you keeping an eye on the most in this current period? Uh, well, uh, there's really three big themes that we have here at Crestcat from a macro standpoint that, that are, you know, also concerns to us. And it, it's, um, it's the valuation of, of stocks really in the U.S. is, is one of them. Uh, and at least according to uh, eight different measures that we have here at Crestcat, uh, U.S. stocks are the most overvalued they've, they've ever been. And uh, second one is, is really the undervaluation of, of gold, of, of precious metals in, in particular, and of silver relative to gold. Uh, and, and when we look at the, the valuation of gold, we look at it relative to the fiat, the global fiat monetary base. And, um, and then the third, the third thing uh, is really the Chinese yuan and the, and the credit bubble that, that we see in the banking system in China, where they've created over $40 trillion of credit in their banking system. And um, we think it's uh, the, the largest uh, banking credit imbalance out there. So another currency, not, not the dollar, that, that, that's another fiat currency that we ha are having uh, trouble getting comfortable with today. So those are really our three big themes in our macro fund. It's a, it's a short um, U.S. equity paired with the long precious metals and a short China, China yuan, also the Hong Kong dollar uh, it has a, a place in there too. Um, so that, those are the three big macro things that we're concerned about today. Right, understandable. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the events happening out east uh, in reference to, as you mentioned, the Chinese, Chinese yuan, as well as the Hong Kong situation. And so um, I know, I think it was a week or two ago, uh, the, uh, the U.S. mainstream press here were talking about, you know, currency manipulators. So it looks like China's labeled a manipulator because they allowed their currency, I guess, to free float a little bit. So was it an actual devaluation or was it just more so open market discovery? And it so happened to break that seven to one pair. Or, or what are your thoughts? What's your opinion on that? Uh, well, that's that's a really good question. We overwhelmingly think the natural downward pressure on the currency is it, well, the natural pressure is down and uh, and the breaking of the seven uh uh, barrier, it, which is a um, uh, kind of a line in the sand. In the, in the past, it's been for the Chinese uh, uh, that they have stopped uh, defending, really. Um, and the, the, but the idea that that China is a currency manipulator, I think, is is uh, you know has has been um, has been somewhat flawed in the sense that uh, you know it's based on the idea that China keeps their currency artificially undervalued in order to gain an export advantage, and that, that may have been the case many years ago. Uh, but uh, for at least the past five years or more, we think the, um, the yuan has been uh, horribly overvalued. And that's because of all the credit they've, they've created in their banking system, and which uh, should be a natural downward pressure on, on the currency. And has been when you look at the, the, the capital that's been trying to, to escape China. Um, but they've had capital controls that have been, been in place to artificially keep their, their currency uh, from falling apart. And so just kind of loosening those capital controls a little bit is what's allowed the the yuan to devalue. The idea that they're current, you know, that, that we're labeling them a currency manipulator. I, th I think that's just part of the the, the uh, trade war negotiations going on at, at this point. Now, uh, I was informed that not long ago, a couple of uh, banks within the country of China were starting to have some issues there. I'm not sure, not, not sure why. Does that also play into why your one of your strategies is to uh, you know position yourself against the yuan the way you are? 
Uh, definitely. We, we think there's an enormous non-performing loan problem in, in China, and that's the, uh, you know, that's the crux of it. When well, you know, they've increased their, their banking system assets by about 400% uh, in the last, uh, since the global financial crisis, really, and, and that is unprecedented growth in any banking system of any major e- economy ever. And uh, for the second largest economy, uh, ever to 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 do that, it it just it just can't be done without creating some underlying problems. And when you see that all the the uh, empty cities and and infrastructure projects that that uh, that China has engaged in, um, a lot of these projects are are not producing the cash flow to to pay back these loans, this credit, and that's the crux of the problem. We we think it's an enormous non-performing loan problem that that at the end of the day. Uh, the banks are are going to have to um, you know to suffer from, and the fact that three or four Chinese banks have already um, been you know effectively had bank runs and been seized now by the government, uh, and they're the, they're just the smaller banks, and they've been absorbed absorbed by the bigger banks. Um, we think that's just an indication of of. Um, of bigger problems in the banking system. Now, I guess, you know, we don't get much press coverage over here, but yet the whole Hong Kong situation with the, the riots on the streets, and it looks like, you know, just from what I'm hearing, that the Chinese military is on the border and things of that nature. Now, clearly that has to be very frightening for the global markets. And so what are some, you know, some, some of those events telling you and what do you see happening in the future? And how does this pan out with the whole trade war? Will there be a deal made or what, what are your opinions on that? Uh, well, I, with Hong Kong, I, you know, Hong Kong alone has its own banking imbalances and credit imbalances and real estate state bubble, um, you know, the highest housing prices uh, per square foot in, in the world and, and, and some of the biggest banking assets relative to, to GDP. Um, so uh, it's interesting because China really has two currencies, the Hong Kong dollar and the, the Chinese yuan. And, and I think the Hong Kong dollar has been pegged for something like 40 years to the U.S. dollar, and and now that um, you know now that these these democracy protests are are just ongoing now, like 11 or 12 weeks um, of this, with the largest one um, over the weekend. Yet uh, it's um, you know you know I mean, China is a totalitarian communist co- country that has an incredible. Uh, banking mismatch, banking imbalance. And, uh, you know, there's, it, it harkens back to Tiananmen Square and, and, uh, you know, what is, what's going to come of this? Uh, I don't know, but, but given all of the, um, all of the credit imbalances, the banking imbalances, we have, you know, our macro indicators are saying that this is, these are currencies we want to be short, um, and uh, with the Hong Kong dollar, it, because it's a peg currency, shorting the Hong Kong dollar through put options is, is like uh, an, an incredibly cheap asymmetric trade. If it doesn't depeg, you lose, but, but on, you know, it's like paying out premium on an insurance policy that doesn't pay off. Uh, but, uh, but if it does, it's, it's potentially a huge uh, asymmetric upside. And uh, we, we think those are some of the most mispriced options out there in the, in the uh, global currency market today. Right, understandable. Now, a lot of the things that is becoming more 
uh, mainstream news now is the fears of an economic slowdown, a global slowdown. And so there's all types of indicators. It's flashing red. I mean, it's t- probably too many of the name. I'm assuming you guys definitely keep an eye on all those indicators. And so where are we currently at in this, you know, this, this, this debt cycle, this business cycle at this current point? Are we still expanding or are we on the way down or where, where are we at now? Well, with, with, um, you know, with the uh, with the yield curve inversions that we're having today, um, both in the U.S. and globally, uh, you know th- that's one sign uh, right right there that we're getting towards the end of the cycle. Given that the Fed has already raised interest rates and, and been through its whole tightening phase for three years plus now, really since that F- that first hike in late 2015, um, we um, you know the fact is that monetary policy works with a lag, and it's all of that tightening when the U.S. was raising interest rates and the rest of the world couldn't, couldn't follow suit that, um, uh, that has created this, um, you know, these problems in emerging markets. So you remember back in 2015, early 2016, that one first little rate hike was what started to blow up China and, uh, and, and emerging markets at large. And, and they pulled out of that tailspin when the Fed paused for a whole year throughout 2016. Then the Fed raised throughout 2017, 2018, along with QT, and um, it's you know it, it's this it's it's that entire tightening cycle. Monetary policy works with a lag of anywhere from from 12 to 24 months, and so it's the lag effect of all that tightening. And we only just ended QT uh, that we have to um, to worry about the the credit tightening effects of that, and um, and so. Um, so when we have this, now that the Fed is, is cutting interest rates, this first rate cut historically has actually uh, uh, coincided with, with the peak of both the tech bubble and, and the peak of the, of the housing bubble, and it precipitated the, the global financial crisis. So the idea that the Fed is cutting rates now is, is uh, much more an indication that there's severe problems and imbalances in the economy, that, that, and the Fed is behind the curve. So... Um, so uh, we, need, we need to be careful, especially with U.S. equities at record valuations across eight indicators that we look at, that the, the U.S. stock market in particular is, is, uh, is at a uh, precipitous type of a place right now. Now, so since we're, we're talking about, you know, the Fed funds rate, I want to definitely mention the graph, so I'll put it, it'll be up on the screen right now. But it's a Fed funds rate versus the S&P 500 index, and you guys have a couple of things highlighted there. If you remember offhand, can you talk a little bit about that for us? Uh, yeah, that, and that's really what I've, I've been trying to, uh, to describe here. So that if you look at that first rate cut that, that we did back in, in – uh, at the peak of the tech bubble, it really, I mean, it coincided with the tech bust. And so when the Fed is raising rates late in the business cycle, uh, that, that's the thing that tends to uh, lead to the, the asset bubbles bursting and to ultimately to the recession. Uh, so it was the tech bubble that, that the rate hikes burst back in, in 2001. Uh, it was the um, it was the housing bubble that the rate that the rate hikes bur- bursted in uh, in 07. and and um, you can see both times it precipitated a pretty steep stock market correction. The difference today is that we are at truly record valuations. Record we had record valuations at the peak of the tech tech bubble too, uh, but it was more concentrated just within within technology stocks and telecommunication stocks. This is much more of um, 
uh, an everything bubble when it comes to all sectors within within the uh, within the S and P 500. Other than energy, energy is like the one sector that's been pretty pretty hammered already. Um, not that we're that we're big bulls on energy yet, but uh, um, it's been a broad stock market rally, and there um, we're overvalued across um, across the whole breadth of of the market. All right now, just looking at that visually, as far as the S and P 500 index. Uh, according to, if you use uh, history as a teacher of possible future or outcomes or however that might be worded, you know, in, in your opinion, how low do, or do you think how far down the S&P 500 can go according to prior trends? Is that a good measurement kind of or, or what are your thoughts? Well, just to get to median, median historical valuations, we see close to 50% uh, correction because we're truly the, the highest valuations that, we, that we've ever been. And if you know, if you if you take a, a long term chart of the of the the Dow, for instance, which is the longest um, the longest running U.S. index, uh, and, you, and you just you you do that on a um, on a regression line and, and a log chart, you can see you can just see clearly that we're more than two standard deviations above the highest you know level that that we've ever been. And, uh, and that it's a 50% correction to get back to, to just median valuations. Now, the market doesn't always stop at, at the median. Most of the time, it, go, it goes lower. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't know f- fundamentally what is, is going to, to, to drive that, um, other than that in the past, we've seen the idea that asset bubbles burst, whether, it, whether it's tech bubbles, housing bubbles, um, banking bubbles in, in, in other countries today like China, but, but uh, this idea that, that uh, there is no alternative to buying, buying the U.S., buying U.S. stocks, uh, e- even the dollar, if we want to go there, I, I think is, is, um, is potentially um, very flawed. Now, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, the, the, we're setting all-time high in, in a variety of categories, none of which are necessarily good, in my opinion, and the number that sticks out the most is, I think, it's, I heard 17 trillion in negative yielding bonds as of not as of late. And so, you know, what does that tell us about the current state of this debt-based monetary system or the debt cycle, or or how will all this play out? You know, how much higher can it go before something has to give? In your opinion? Yeah, I, I think we we have uh, a situation today that we liken to a global yield curve inversion, and we have a chart on that too. Where, uh, where it kind of illustrates what's going on with the $17 trillion of worldwide of negative yielding debt and, uh, and interest rates in, in, in countries like Japan and Germany and, uh, um, and in other European countries are negative. And, and that is, is, um, is uh, you know, just a, a very troubling situation. And a lot of the reasons is that, is that debt, is, we have so much debt relative to GDP globally. Uh, we're at the highest global debt to GDP levels we've, we've ever been. And, um, and the idea that, that, that central banks are going to continue to support this, uh, uh, all, all of this debt has led to record low interest rates. Uh, and also the idea that there's, no, that there's not really any, any inflation and that central banks have been ineffective in creating inflation is also somewhat at, at the core of this. But um, um, we think that it, that a determined central bank can always create inflation if if it, if it wants to, but but there's this this uh, this overwhelming um, 
more, I mean, almost more a fear of, of deflation and, and almost just outright hubris when it comes to, to, to buying bonds as the, as the, uh, as the safe haven trade to, uh, uh, you know, when we're going into an economic crisis, uh, whether it's treasury bonds or European bonds, you know, being on the same side as these central banks that are, that are buying these things. And it's all well and good and, and, until, um, you know, potentially <clears throat> until we actually get inflation to, to show up. And then, and then uh, uh, I think we can see something that we, that, um, you know, we haven't seen in, in decades uh, unfold. And um, anyway, but, but, you know, but who knows? For, for now, we've been through, the, you know, multiple decades of this idea of, of you got to buy bonds when, when, we, uh, when we're going into a, to an economic downturn. And it's a very popular trade. Um, I don't know how well it's going to work in, in this cycle. Now, I'm curious to get your thoughts and opinions just from a, a long-term investor, several decades you've been uh, managing and in these markets in this nature. And so would you have ever imagined that we would have such terms as quantitative tightening, quantitative easing, ZERP, NERP, you name it. You know, would you have ever imagined that we would arrive at this current point uh, in your past several decades as an investor and as a as a money manager? Uh, well, being in my mid-50s and having grown up during the 70s, you know, I, I'm tainted by a whole, that whole decade of inflation, even though I was pretty young uh, at, that point, at that time. You know, I, I saw it and I've seen you know, interest rates, you know, come down from, from 20% or so in here in the U.S. and in 1980 all the way until uh, to where they are, you know, yields are, are today in, in the treasury bond market. And and even lower in in uh, in other countries, and so um, no, I, I I would not have seen this. Um, and uh, you know, I am a you know, but I'm old enough that I'm still of the belief that we can have inflation and we can can have it even even in this country. So, um, so we're going to have have to see. Right, understandable. Now, well, inflation, in your opinion, of course, just just you know, your, just your thoughts. Inflation again. If we were to see inflation similar to that of the '70s. I, I wasn't around during that time frame, so I, I didn't get a chance to experience it directly, but I heard a lot about it. Now, what would that kind of look like in this day and age if gas prices spiked up and things became very uh, relatively pricey? Um, is, is that something that the average person would be able to handle in this country, given the fact that you know we all we know is our comforts and just having privileges as the leading reserve currency? Well, there, there's certainly lots of, of reasons, first of all, to, to understand and believe why inflation can be low with, it, with technological innovation, with, with, with um, uh, you know, central banks, you know, support of, of interest rates with the aging population issues that we have, uh, and, uh, and just the past experiences that, that we've had in, in the prior two recessions that have been uh, somewhat deflationary. Uh, the last one in particular, um, but uh, I, I think that um, that people, by in large, are not prepared for anything uh, uh, on the inflation front of, of any sort, and and uh, just because we haven't had it for so long, uh, and um, uh, I think that's the biggest risk to, today is is that uh, it's just not priced in to to. Uh, to any to anything in the fixed income markets certainly and and also in the precious metals um, markets um, uh, you know one one chart that, that we have um, is pretty interesting because it shows how um, 
how actually today, even before inflation has started to, to show up, that we have real yields actually declining. And uh, because interest rates themselves have come down so much <clears throat> that, um, that real yields are, are, are declining and, and ready to, to, to turn negative. And if, if they haven't already, and, and, you know, and so um, and that's really what we see, what we see as, um, you know, as, as a precursor uh, to inflation and, and, and as a driver for precious metals in particular. If you look at that chart that shows the relationship between uh, real interest rates and precious metals, we have to invert real interest rates so they, so they move in tandem. But you can see that when interest, real interest rates decline, precious metals start to break out. And that, that's the problem with, with all the central bank money printing that we had in the wake of the global financial crisis. You would think that would be the driver of, of precious metals, and, and it was. But, um, but when the inflation never really came through, um, that's why it was 2011 or so that, that precious metals stopped going up. But we've been in a bear market in precious metals since, uh, since that time. Um, so um, the re reason being that real interest rates stopped going down, and they've been act they were actually rising. Well, now real interest rates have broken down again. I think, and the money printing is, is looking like it's going to have to ramp up again. Um, I think we have a real, a real good, um, great combination. And, and precious metals themselves are the, the cheapest they've ever been relative to that total global fiat monetary base. So, um, so that's pretty interesting to us. All right. Appreciate you sharing that. Now, a couple more questions, then I'll let you go. I definitely, as, as you explaining this, more questions come to mind. So uh, okay. I'm curious to get your thoughts, you know, from a macro standpoint, as you mentioned earlier, you've listed a lot of indicators that you keep an eye on and your strategies there. And so my question is, in regards to what's happening in the developed nations or emerging markets, we have Argentina right now having severe issues. And we have, I think, Zimbabwe is going through some issues so all those smaller currencies, smaller markets are really having you know issues right now. Do you see the next economic downturn or whatnot emerging from something of that nature, or will it be in one of the leading G7 nations and spilling outwards? Or, or what are your thoughts and opinions on that? Uh, well, I think that that it's it's really been this tightening that we've already had uh, for the past several years that is 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 what what threat with the dollar is the world reserve currency with, with uh, um, you know, the other countries not being able to match that policy and, and a lot of debt globally being denominated in dollars. That, that's what starts to cause the problems in other emerging market countries like Argentina, uh, like in, in, uh, in the Asian countries, Turkey uh, and so forth. The, the problems do tend to, to when, it, when it comes from a tightening phase, the problems do tend to, to show up in, in emerging markets. And the biggest emerging market credit bubble of all, like we've talked about already, we believe is, is China. Uh, Hong Kong is connected with, with that. Um, and, uh, and so uh, if you have to, to ask our view, I, I really do think a, a lot of it emerges from, from, from China. Um, and um, uh, especially with, uh, with the trade wars, uh, with this, uh, and another thing when it comes to inflation and what might cause inflation to, to, to rise for real this time around is, is this whole trend towards deglobalization. So rising nationalism, rising populism, trade, global trade wars. Um, these, these are inflationary phenomenon. So the, you know, the globalization has been one of those disinflationary trends that we've, that we've had for the past several decades. 
that is going away somewhat. Tariffs are inflationary, right? So we think that uh, that it, it it you know it, it could emerge in a lot in a lot of different places because we're in an everything asset bubble when it comes to a lot of different countries, a lot of different uh, asset classes, whether it's U.S. stocks, um, global fixed income, um, and um, real estate. And, and so um, uh, it's, it's asset bubbles that, that are global, global debt to GDP. I mean, that's an asset bubble of fixed income assets globally. Um, that, that's been supported by, the, by this idea that central banks have got your back, and, uh, and yet they have, they have one play in their playbook, and that is lower interest rates and print more money. Um, but ultimately, th- those things um, are inflationary, and they become inflationary when, when, that, when all the money that's created no longer chases those asset bubbles and, and starts... Um, Looking, actually believing that we might have inflation going into inflation hedge assets like precious metals, uh, that things can become self-reinforcing the other way, and uh, and central banks, um, I think, are going to find themselves in a, in a very different different situation. I do agree. And so, the very last question: Jackson Hole meeting this week. Do you foresee uh, the market responding to that based upon what's said out of that meeting? And do you factor in any more price or rate cuts this year leading to uh, what comes some some to not be the recession before 2020, after 2020? What are your opinions on that? Uh, I think it's the, the the yield curve itself, which is the market speaking to the Fed, uh, that is going to be forcing the Fed's hand into into cutting into cutting rates further. There's three more cuts priced into the Fed funds futures curve before year end already. And so whatever they say, they're going to have to appear to be balanced and, and not try to spook the, the economy. Uh, you know, they can never say we're going into a recession, uh, but they'll, they'll talk about the risks being balanced and so forth. And at the end of the day, they're, they're going to have to cut because that's what the yield curve is telling them that they have to do. And I don't think the Fed has ever disappointed what the Fed funds futures markets were, were suggesting that it was um, going to have to do. So, um, you know, I, I don't expect anything too shocking coming coming out of uh, of, of Jackson Hole. I, I do think it will be uh, as as people start to realize that that central banks are globally are back in easing mode because there's real problems in the economy. I mean, earnings really are, uh, uh, you know, troubled here in the U.S. There we have a number of countries already tipping into recession. Um, and uh, and China, we think, is is first and foremost among them. That's a credit bubble that was destined to burst on its own. You know, regardless of this trade war situation, the trade wars are just a catalyst to to, to help make it happen. And, um, and, and you know, as are the you know what's going on in Hong Kong with the democracy uh, uh, protests. So um, I think that um, uh, Fed's gonna gonna gonna. Um, talk about the, you know, the risks in increasing uh, towards recession. Uh, uh, not that they'll spook us and, and, and say it's going to be a preemptive cut, you know, an insurance cut, if you will. But, you know, you go back to that chart that we showed, uh, you know, um, near the beginning. And, and when interest rates, when, when you get that first cut, it's not because things are rosy. It's because uh, there's real problems in the global economy. 
Kevin Smith, it's been great having you here on Rethinking a Dollar. Can you please, uh, for those that you know, might want to reach out, or can you direct them back to how they can find out more about your services and possibly reach out to you and your team there and get connected and find out more about what's going on with you guys? You, you bet. We've got a, a website. Um, unlike most hedge funds, we actually have a fairly open website. You're welcome to go check that out at, at, uh, at crescat.net, C-R-E-S-C-A-T. Uh, myself and, and my partner Tavi were very active on on Twitter, uh, so you can check us out there. I'm, I'm Crescat Kevin um, is my Twitter handle at Crescat Kevin and uh, at Otavio Costa, uh, or maybe it's Tavi Costa. But anyway, if you if you search for us, um, you'll find us. Uh, we're pretty active on social media, and we have an open website. Um, we've got a a, a, um, a long only precious metals um, separately managed account strategy that we've just launched recently, uh, which is open to uh, to non-accredited as well as accredited investors. I encourage you to uh, to check that out as, as well. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you for joining us here on We Thinking a Dollar. Definitely look forward to continuing to stay in tune with you. I, I do follow you guys on Twitter, so I enjoy the visual aids you guys share with the public. So you do a great job of educating the public. And so I appreciate you taking time out for us here on We Thinking a Dollar. And uh, wish you the best and definitely hope we have you back on a couple months from now and, and, and things are better and have a much uh, more brighter conversation at that point as well. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate it.